podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. And remember to include the name The Scoreless Sort of Podcast in your application. Thank you. Man there trying to stop Joe from getting himself into further trouble. It's a fucking disgrace. It's not a bad ball for Pelle on the right side. It's Carlos Alberto. And what a great goal that was. Carlos Alberto. Maradona just walked away from Hoddle then. Maradona. They're appealing for offside. The ball came back off the foot of Steve Hodge. And Maradona gives Argentina the lead. The England players protesting to the referee. Half final zo. Ik heb opeens zo'n gevoel dat we in de halve finale gaan komen. Met de balbezit voor Frank de Boer. Frank de Boer speelt de bal. Heel goed naar Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp neemt de bal aan. Dennis Bergkamp. Hello and Hello. welcome back to the Scoreless Thriller podcast. I'm joined as always by Leon. Leon, how are you doing? Super excited to be here today. And we've got a special guest joining us today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Yuri. Yuri Levy. Nice night. Thank you guys for having me. I'm excited to join. So Yuri is a Israeli-based uh, football journalist who is the founder and uh, writer at Babagol.net, a football media channel which covers uh, Latin America, Asia, focused on the Middle East and Africa and provides insights on culture and society and politics and all the all where football meets to com- to combine. Is that, a, is that a pretty good uh, summary yeah, yeah. of what you do? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so, yeah. So I think a good place for us to, to start and so I wanted to get you on this podcast to talk about a story which is sort of uh, transcended is sort of and has spread across to Western media where we haven't we not normally sort of see football stories and stories from the region in places like the New York Times or in the UK media or European media. But I would before we sort of get into that story on Better Jerusalem, I would like to you to tell our listeners a bit more about yourself and you know where Babagol net comes from and like what's your footballing journalism story is because I think I've heard you on another podcast talk about this so I think it'd be a good good insight for our listeners yeah and it seems like an incredibly Great. interesting project so yeah yeah uh, sure with pleasure you know um, in the past uh, decade I would say seven years eight years um, I'm writing about football for a living um, started really off as a basically some kind of a life-saving try uh, surviving university um, connecting football to the topics that I was studying in, the, in my first degree in my BA Middle Eastern history and Latin American history with Arabic and Spanish and, and Portuguese um, 
and I decided to connect it to to these regions, which I had always like a simple, you know, small passion about the, the football scenarios, uh, playing championship manager or simply just watching the tournaments on Eurosport, if it's the Africa Cup of Nations or the Asian Cup and things like that, and how every time it's evolving with politics and geopolitical issues and society and nationalism um, and cultures, basically. Uh, so I, I, I decided to go in this way and, and start to write about it uh, pretty avidly at the beginning for for myself, for my Facebook page, uh, for my fa- personal Facebook page. But then my girlfriend like, told me, come on, man, you know, not all your friends uh, care about the new Paraguayan uh, defender that uh, started to represent <laughs> Palestinian national team. Uh, come on, stop. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, so Babagol was a combination of everything. Um, and I, I managed to connect it pretty well uh, during my studies that in a certain stage I haven't written even one phrase in, in my studies that is not related to football in some way. In a pretty early stage in my second year in university, everything became heavily connected with football. Um, and then I started to sell also pieces. I uh, started my blog, Babagor, which was a pretty simple blogger page with minimum UX, UI awareness or anything. Um, But people joined in, uh, more writers who also had this small secret passion for for different regions, which are not the top five leagues, that are not Premier League, Champions League football, you know, mainstream. And we grew today, we are a group of, uh, depends on on the time of the year, but between nine to 17 writers that contributes weekly or sometimes do weekly, sometimes, you know, on periods every day even, depends if it's a big tournament or or so. Um, And really we are focused on the Middle East because most of the writers are coming here. You know, my ecosystem in Israel is pretty big. I'm working, uh, since I started Babagol, I'm working with all the big medias here. And uh, as well in the Middle East, in Qatar, in the UAE, in Egypt, um, Palestine, of course. Uh, you know, it's it's basically the same place, but I'm working with media from over there. And, you know, we, it's, I want to say that, I'm, uh, you know, I really like what I do and I, I'm grateful for, for fighting, fi- finding my, my place in football. But basically, I built a junction. I built a, a really good junction that connects East and West through football in the Middle East. Um, because we, I'm coming from a mixed family where people speak in Arabic and Hebrew. So I had these two, I would say, point of views on, on everything that, are, that, that is taking place here. And it's not an easy place. It's not a simple place. You know, I, I grew up in Jerusalem where, you know, buses were bombing and there was the second intifada. And these are things that even if you are safe and, you know, my, my family is okay and everybody were fine, you know, it's it's not a, it's not that issue. But if you grew, growing up in such environment, it's opened your mind, you know, for things that you wouldn't expect maybe in different places. Um, and it's something that I brought in also the vibe into the, into the, into Babagol and, and, and you know, the team. Um so I think that, you know, we are right now on a, on a certain junction 
that really unveils many stories that doesn't get uh, their, you know, uh, I would say the stage that they deserve to get. So we give them this stage in Babagor. Whether it's players that nobody heard from, uh, from South America, we have this scout, Juan Gafas, uh, from, from Latin America, who's writing about players that nobody heard of. And, you know, we, we are following these players and seeing them progressing having very interesting careers, or really football in Palestine, West Bank Premier League, Israeli Premier League, always with the footballing story, but also what we can learn from it, what, what we can take from it, uh, culture-wise, politically-wise, um, and obviously a story of, uh, of you know, Betar Jerusalem, what's taking, uh, taking place recently, is, uh, it's our money time, basically. Yeah? Uh, this, is, this is what Baba Gol is here for. Exactly this. Yeah, that's really also the feeling and the charisma that you feel when you read these stories. Like you tap into something maybe that has not been covered as much by international media, but that conveys a lot. It's not just football, but it's always also something else, often something political or cultural. And this intersectionality, intersectionality I think it's incredibly interesting um, to watch out for when you read through these articles. And I think also thank a good you, bridging so point to what we want to talk about today. I just have one quick question because if you talked about this, um, that yeah. a lot of the people that work for um, Babago are interested in maybe the leagues that are not mainstream. And why do you think that is? Is there some specific notion of football that is still present in these leagues that is, that, that is happening outside of big transfer for, and these huge markets? Or why do you think the, the, the interest is there? Uh, it's a brilliant question, you know. It's I think it's a question I ask myself every morning. Why we do what we do? Or sometimes I'm tired and I I, I don't I, I don't have the energy to edit now this story about, you know, this guy from Ecuador, who heard of him? I'm, I'm I doubt that even his mother knows him. <laughs> yeah, okay. But Remembering the bigger picture every morning with the coffee, I know that, you know, like everything in life, well, in, in, in the small places, in the places that is tough and, 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 and raw, the real magic of football in this case, but of life basically, is taking place. People in the beginning of the way, stories that are untold and, and, and in a way enclave a lot of humanity, a lot of uh, struggles. And, you know, we, as, as someone who lives and basically I provide myself through stories, through telling stories, where there is a conflict, there is a, there is a story. There is a, there is a narrative that you can hold on to and learn. And as a writer, you know, you must love to learn new things and to, to, to get an introduction to words you haven't, haven't been aware of. So I think um, each one of my writers have this perversion to, to a certain, certain part of the world. And I appreciate every one of these, uh, each one of these uh, perversions because, because it's also me, you know, and it's, uh, everyone has this soft spot. And I think that in a way, football, Premier League, Champions League, all the big, the massive football, even Bayern Munich, okay? Manchester United, Real Madrid, once, and when you go back in the past, they were exactly this. 
and and in the essence of the game each one of these mega clubs were, were was a small club was was something uh, you know a personal story of a grandmother and her grandchild who want to play and she made the laundry and one player came you know this this is what's sitting in the essence of football so yeah now it's a branded uh, mega you know it's a mega rich organizations that basically think called financial economical decisions all the time 24/7 and so i think these people the people who do babagolo people are uh, attracted i think by the by the virginity of other places which are less developed less in this uh, in this manner but also has rich history and stories and and something to say and a stage to to stand up on so as as i said we give these these people these stories the stage Hmm. Do you feel like this sort of um, passion and also kind of connection to their club that you might find in the Middle East is something that's kind of something that's quite unique and in some places maybe we may feel that it's kind of been lost and actually people might be looking for a better connection to that club and that kind of thing which they won't find in the sort of super clubs these days? Yeah, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, you know, uh, disregard the connection Or the feelings any fan you know in Manchester or in London has for its club you cannot disregard it and you know each fan I have respect for each club each national team and each feeling that the game is creating in a in the heart of somebody yeah of course but I do think that if you want to feel football in you you know our slogan is keeping football real if you want real football, Football that yeah maybe the player smokes a pack of cigarette a day but he struck 20 goals last season in the Colombian uh, Primera División yes so it's real because it can be me it can be you or 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 Alex you know so for me I do think that yeah real football is in the outskirts I and I'm saying it without disregarding any feelings of fans to their big clubs you know if if I was born in Manchester I probably was a Manchester City or Manchester United fan and I would be happy about it you know it was part of my identity so I have the utmost respect for any football identity of course but yes if you want to keep it real go to Babagol cool so I think that's a good little segue to move on to our our main topic that we wanted to discuss today so for those people who are kind of completely unaware of this story, they may have been aware of a documentary a few years ago called Forever Pure, which follows a season with Beta Jerusalem, which is very connected sort of to the very right wing in Israeli politics. And the club has never had an Arab player. And during the season, they, the, the Russian owner brings two Muslim Chechens into the team and it results in a revolt in, from the fans, a boycott, and uh, the 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 clubhouse at the at the training ground gets burnt down, and all all hell breaks loose. So, uh, before we sort of go into the story at the moment, what was the once when that documentary was released? As somebody who covers football in Israel, what was the reaction to this story coming out, and also what was the effect on something like Babagol, which I presume other people sort of came to look for more information on the story? Yeah, yeah, you know, uh, my relationship with this movie is, is funny. It's, it's, it managed to shift in many in many directions during my career because when it just came out, uh, I wasn't even aware that it came out. 
you know, because as someone who lives here, and you know, I was working in the Israeli Sport Channel back back then uh, as a freelancer, uh, 2013, uh, just doing some archive job, and the story about the Chechen players blew up. So you know, it was part of Israeli football. It was part of something that's going on. It's like right now something will happen, like a, a, a weird transfer saga will take place in Bromby or Copenhagen, okay, for example, I don't know. So when the movie came out, I already had Baba Gol and we had, uh, it was time that we were covering uh, the Indian Super League pretty heavily, uh, and, and we had many Indian followers. Uh, these guys are very passionate about football and uh, they, they have many opinions and they like to, to, to say them all and we got hundreds of messages. Do, uh, uh, all Israelis are hating Arabs. All Jerusalem people are racist. They hate Arabs. And you know, it was very tough situation for me because in Babakola, I'm, I'm not highlighting the fact that we are, most of the team are based in Israel or actually are Israelis or I am Israeli. But I was in a situation that I needed in a way to defend something which I don't, do not have any identification with which is Beta Jerusalem or La Familia, the, the 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 radical fan group which were was in the center of this saga. And so it was very hard for me at the beginning and I said, oh, man, this movie is ruining our names, you know, because now everybody thinks that everyone related to football in Israel is racist. But I think in the long term, when I also uh, myself went back to write about this story and I understand that it's very important there is a, like a gap of knowledge of, of about Israeli football and the way that the you know the the political identities of football club in Israel and the way they they developed there is a gap of knowledge in the world about it so also I want to discover more about the history of Betar and uh, and the Jews that coming from Arab countries like my family for example and discovered many things. Um, I can tell you this, in the long run, I think the movie did good because it brought a mirror for many people, not just the radical racist fans of Beta Jerusalem, also the, you know, the we, we like to call them here the silent majority because Beta has half a million fans. It's a huge club here. Yeah. Nobody knows, but like outside of Israel, but Beta is also Arab fans. They do. Yeah, because because it's a, it's a massive club, and for years it was the club of the underdogs, of all the people that the establishment is basically stepping on, declining them, not giving them the the, the right uh, you know the right place in the in the in the Israeli society, the political game, and so many people identified with the Beitar for many years, until you know things became very much radicalized. And, and it changed a lot. And, and La Familia, thanks to Arkady Gaidamak, who was the owner of Betar, uh, enjoyed a huge financial support like no other fan group in the history of Israeli football. He literally fin- financed them for, for like two years, three years, gave them a basement in the stadium to keep their equipment. And it was something much more organized. Because he was thinking, yeah, I will give them money and they will vote for me in the elections for the Jerusalem uh, uh, municipality. Uh, Arkady Gadmak was like uh, is a Russian oligarch 
who bought Beitar a few years before the Chechen the Chechen player saga, and it was like his last, you know, um, I would say last uh, effort to do something ex- exceptional with the team. Um, so I, I would say that, you know, forever pure had a, had a positive and negative uh, negative impact on me personally, but. For me personally, and I think for 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 the majority of, of Beta Jerusalem or uh, Beta Jerusalem as a whole, the positive uh, impact in the long term, of course, of course, because otherwise we wouldn't have this discussion. We didn't, we didn't have this movement, you know. Do yes, Beta must have a Muslim player, an Arab Muslim player, and you know, without this discussion, they weren't playing now. Number 55 in their lineup every game, Ali Muhammad. Uh, from Najar, um, who is a so, Christian? We, right? we, we were, yes, what? No, 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 no. But Ali um, Muhammad is a Christian, right? And wasn't still the the argument from La Familia or the request that he should change his name in order to make the radical right wing fans happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there still so seems example, to be an issue going on to some degree, right? It will always be an issue, yeah. and, uh, and we will now, when we will move to speak about the deal, I will explain exactly how and what are the challenges coming, yeah. coming really in the near future. Because I but think, for example, Ali, think about the, think about the situation that not in Corona days, but when Teddy Stadium is full and the whole crowd, when when he pass an assist or in the players' uh, presentation, the announcer says Ali, and the whole stadium says Muhammad. You know, it's yeah. it's it's a statement by Beitar, and it's it's you know for for us maybe oh come on, but he's he's half a Christian, and, uh, and uh, La Familia tried to ch- ask him to change. Yeah, but in in the end of the day, when there is a when there is a game of Beitar Jerusalem, we are talking about the most racist football club in Israel, maybe one of the most racist clubs in the world. This is a huge step forward in the right direction. Huge. Yeah. So it's you know you cannot win this war one day like this with a magic stick. No, no of course it's not. a process, and you need to change people's minds to reopen circles. Um, so for this, you know, we have. A, I'm trying to be myself very supportive, although you know, someone who was born and raised in Jerusalem, and I grew on the other side of the road. I was a fan of Apoel Jerusalem a club with his own story, but completely the opposite from Beta. It's something that I see very nice, and I think that they are going in the right direction. Um, but yeah, I hope I answered the question. Yeah, I don't know. yeah, of <laughs> yeah, course, for sure, of for course. Sure. I think I think the um, what I took from the documentary was definitely not that it portrayed all Israeli football fans as right wing, um, but much rather that it shot a light or the focus on this one very radical part of Baitar Jerusalem, which was kind of driven forward by La Familia. Um, um, and it kind of tried to deal with this specific problem and see how it was rooted within the society. Um, but the, I think the interesting thing or the interesting turning point in the documentary is that first you see the session play, players joining uh, the team and for a couple of minutes you think that maybe this might work out because you have a press conference where everyone welcomes them and you think okay maybe this is a happy ending maybe this is going somewhere um, productive 
But then um, there's this period where also the Boston bombing appears, and then one of the Chechen players actually scores a goal. And this is when La Familia, or at least the the the, the Western block, right? How how are they called? Which which stand? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, which yeah. Stand, the Western stand, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, the Western stand. No, they, the, La Familia is in the eastern stand. The eastern, ah, okay, eastern. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, the, I, I knew I'd get this wrong. The eastern stand. Sorry, the eastern stand uh, stands up and they they start to walk out of the stadium um, in in a very um, yeah publicly like they demonstrated that they were fed up with this and then what happens afterwards is that to all the next matches barely any fans show up and this is where 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 you start to wonder as a viewer okay before you thought that La Familia was kind of this minor part of the fan base of Baital uh, Jerusalem but then how do they have this power to keep everyone else from coming and I think that's that's where you start to think, okay, how, how much influence do they really have? What is the effect that they also have maybe beyond the stadium and within society? And I think that's one very interesting thing where it would be good for you to to, to tell us, like, how, how does this work out? Uh, also, it has, work has out? it changed in the years since the documentary coming out in 2016? Look, it, I think that it's a very good point you are touching here because uh, I think and I've said uh, you know in a little in a sad way a little bit because I think all of the Israeli society has radicalized a lot in the past decade and um, for me it's hard because uh, who I am because my family because um, the, the way I, was, I grew up, where I grew up, and it's hard to see, but the, you know, people said that football is, uh, many people said that football is the reflection of society, yeah? But I say it's not a, a, a perfect reflection. It's like, it's not a mirror of society, but it gives you hints, football gives you hints about something that is about to happen or something that is taking place underground, and soon you will see it in the big stages. And this is exactly what happened here. Because people really downplay the importance of, of, of this deal, which was historical and critical for, for Beitar at this point. Um, a very radical act by, by Gaidamak and, and the club's management. But in the years to come, Israeli society, society became more uh, radicalized in many aspects, uh, whether they are Jews, Muslims, pro-Palestinians, anti-Palestinians, all this became really unbearable. You know, many people say, you know, it's a, it's a great country, great people, great food, everybody's so nice, doesn't matter. But with, there are so many groups, so many interests colliding and the tension is high. And I think this story was a very big sign and hint on the direction that things are going. And you know, it's, I'm talking about the microcosmos of Jerusalem and Israel, but it's a worldwide phenomenon. We see it you know, a few days back in the, in the Capitol Hill, in, the, in Washington, D.C., USA. You know, so for us, it was very hard because it was it was taking place in front of our eyes and look it's it was tough but it hinted really the the, the direction that Israeli society and Israeli politics 
went through because La Familia and many similar sister movements became more present in Jerusalem, in the streets. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, these uh, names will tell you something, but the Kahana Tzadak, Le'ava, it's these kinds of movements that, you know, are very much extreme right-wing, uh, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim, anti-any integration between populations, very, you know, this jealousy for, for Judaism and stuff like this that are not representing in any way the majority of Israeli society, which is, you know, built from so many people from so many backgrounds and religions and beliefs and lifestyles that, you know, it's it's sad. But in many cases, especially in, in football, we let the extremists define us, especially when we tell our stories outside. So, when, you know, the challenge for people like me was to show that, yeah, you can, you know, you can be at the first step for our Indian followers to show them, yeah, I can be from Israel and from Jerusalem and into football, but not racist at all. And it doesn't say anything about me. But on the, on the wider aspect, I think that the Beitar and Israeli football and, and many people had to clean their image that was created by this movie. Um, not created, but got a, got a really serious push uh, for for its, uh, I would say, stereotype. Uh, and we are still doing it. Look, um, for example, you know, it's it's also a sad thing because two years ago, the Israeli national team had a record uh, of um, seven non-Jewish players in the starting lineup. Six, sorry, in the starting lineup and seven in the in the squad someone wrote someone wrote about it it opened the story in the in the new york times bbc no it's less interesting it's more sexy when you have a violent bunch of men like la familia that going around screaming and doing a, you know bad reputation to to israel and jerusalem and Beitar. so i get it and this is the game um but there are many things here, so so it's complex, and um, I don't remember what was the original question. Again, I, I hope I answered it. Yeah. No, I, th- I think you. I think you answered it. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> and beyond. <laughs> cool. So I think. So let's fast forward to 2020. Now that we sort of laid the groundwork. So, yeah. uh, in last year, um, a member of a distant member of the Abu Dhabi royal family in. The UAE has bought a fifty. Bin Khalifa bought a fifty percent stake in in Beitar Jerusalem, and mm-hmm. so this this was the story which sort of grabbed my attention and also people around the world. So, what has been the reaction in both in Israel and also in the region to this to this deal? As as also it falls, I guess, as part of the Israeli UAE sort of normalization agreement and growing normalization of ties between the countries. What has been the reaction to it, both in football and also generally in Israel? Yeah, so we are talking about, you know, every year in Papagol we are doing the the best of the year. From 2016 until today, 2020, we, each year we pick the 20 biggest stories in football. Good, bad, sad, happy, whatever we choose. Um, for me, this story is basically the football business 
story of not 2020, of the decade, or maybe the past generation. Because everything we spoke about now, it's something that really impacts the life of millions. Beitar's identity in Israel, the right-wing identity in Israel, the Chechen players, the racism, La Familia, Kadigaimak, all this is sitting here. And for us, the first time we heard the thing about, you know, a Muslim Arab man from the Abu Dhabi royal family who want to invest, I'm not talking about buying part of the club, want to invest in Betar Jerusalem, it's something, you know, you take the brain out of the head and you hang it in the air. <laughs> it is, it's impossible, yeah? So for me, and I, you know, I got this uh, uh, support for this uh, thesis of mine from uh, one really great uh, person and writer and journalist and author, James Montague, which uh, is a fundamental uh, read for everyone, I think, who, who loves football. Each one of his book, whether when Friday comes, Oh, yeah, I'm currently reading his book on, on ultras, the one, yeah. Yeah, and the ultras, right, the new one, uh, 1312. Yeah. So um, James agreed with me and said, this is unbelievable. Like, this, this story is the biggest story. But um, you are lucky to speak with me, and I tell you why. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was the only journalist, Israeli, specifically, but also in general, the only journalist who was there in Dubai during the signing of the agreement. Okay. Um, and I must tell you, with the introduction that we spoke about now, where I come from, Jerusalem, I'm a Middle Eastern football journalist in the past seven years. Um, basically, it's it was a meeting, it was the perfect junction. We talked about junction in the beginning of the conversation. It was the perfect junction. I felt like I'm going to Dubai. I was there a couple of times before. Asian Cup, uh, AFC Champions League, all kind of cool games. But this was an hallucination that taking place for me. You know, my niche, my professional niche, and my city, and my football, Israeli football, are meeting in this impossible football team. And I was super excited. I closed many gigs with multiple media bodies from around the world. Ghana, Nigeria, uh, Israel, of course, the New York Times, England, uh, the UAE also, Qatar, was crazy, okay? Now, I landed there and I was like a kid showing up for a party. I said, this is, this is a big moment, yeah? But apparently in the United Arab Emirates, no journalist that I spoke with knew about this deal. But how and did you know about it? I knew about it, but there nobody heard about this guy, the Sheikh, Sheikh Hamid Ben Khalifa. Yeah. Nobody. I said, okay, it's weird. But maybe football is not interesting for, for, for people here, or Betar is not a big name enough. And, you know, it, it was very weird because we had this peace, historical peace agreement, Abraham Accords, Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, all coming together. There is a serious wind of change here in the region now, yes? Because 
many of uh, financial agreements are taking place. There is a huge sense of, uh, of you know, convergence here, right, in these days, in this way. And I, it was weird because I covered the, the story of Dia Saba. Uh, Dia Saba is uh, first Israeli player to play in, uh, in our league, signed for Nasser Dubai in the end of September, basically. And, and you know, there was a huge excitement about it in, in the UAE. But, man, nobody knew about the Beitar Jerusalem story. And I said, come on, man. Every Arab know what Beitar Jerusalem is. Every Danish kid who just Google football racism find out about the Beitar Jerusalem. There is no way nobody knows about it. And I started digging and digging and digging, but I needed to report. And at that moment, the first day I was there, it was it was still this story, this historical, mind-blowing, fire-breaking football business incident that I happened to be the only journalist to cover. So I reported the New York Times and I reported multiple medias about it, and it was a celebration. But something felt missing for me because there was no echo around. None, no one from the journalist, and I talked with around 20 knew about this, all was invited to the press conference the day after. The press conference included only Israeli journalists by Zoom, BBC, New York Times, Washington Post, and that's it. Now, you say, you sit there, and I'm sitting and I'm saying, there is no way. How is this possible? What is going on? So I start asking more and more people about this guy. And basically, it will be a big, very big piece about it in Babagol, uh, which I'm working on it in, in the past month, basically. Um, because this story hasn't ended yet. Um, okay. They did, they did the, the, the presentation with the shirt and everything. They enjoyed the PR coming with it. As I said and just mentioned, you mentioned also, Liam, all the Western media was all over this story. But in the Arab world, the only media bodies to report it were Qatari, uh, Egyptian, um, Arab, uh, Arabic-speaking Turkish medias, all the medias that are against the group of countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, who are normalizing with Israel. Because they use the story to say, look, these traitors, the UAE, are now owning 50% of the most racist uh, club uh, in Israel, a club that uh, its fans are singing against the, uh, against the Prophet, against Muhammad. And I found it really interesting, and I started speaking with many people, and this deal is far from over. Um, because someone here is uh, is playing a very interesting game, uh, playing a very interesting game with the emotions of the fans. First of all, yeah. yeah what the, what were the reactions of the fans like when this came out? When you made the story public, what were the responses? Wow! Well, look, um, it's this story is currently circulating already. Uh, Basically, we see something very interesting in, among Beitar fans, okay? First of all, for the first time, there was a majority in the crowd 
who supported this kind of move. Mm-hmm. They came, protested, they had uh, signs, huge signs and banners in support of Khaled ben Khalifa. Uh, and La Familia, who came to the first practice after the deal, say, protested. There were only 70 people. When we, you saw the movie uh, Forever Pew, there were 10,000 a game, 5,000 in each practice, protesting. So it, I think the only real thing, really, something real that taking place from this from this deal is the is the momentum that the the unpopular voice in beta Jerusalem fans the voice that calls for coexistence the voice that says let's put racism aside let's forget about this let's move on we want to be a successful football club we want to have our players we want to have an Arab owner this voice grew and and became much more stronger than than what it was no doubt about it um, but the the whole commercial side of this deal and administrative side of this deal is far from over because there is i i i don't want to say and i don't want to spoil you know i'm doing a, a huge teaser here for this piece <laughs> yeah that's <laughs> keep, keep the keep the powder dry <laughs> Yeah, but this deal is fishy. This okay. deal is fishy as hell. And someone is taking taking advantage of the momentum with the peace agreement, with, with all the peace environment, and also taking advantage of the name Betal Jerusalem and the fact that you live in Arabona in order to shade on a much broader and grayer deal that's taking place in the background. And right now it's only circulating... Uh, in Israeli media, but so be as, sure that it's going to be one of the most complicated pieces that that will be unbobable. So because the actual, this story is really open up my mind to first of all, football business is is a sewer. Yeah, it's it's something very dirty. It's there is no romanticism or a sense of a, you know representation of a, of a new. Uh, Beitar Jerusalem, not at all, unfortunately. This is what I discovered in Dubai. Yeah. And moreover, in the past months since, basically, I, I'm finding myself doing journalism of, you know, crime journalism, not football journalism, or, or something like this. Yeah. But isn't that exactly what you talked about at the beginning of this pod? That it is this intersectionality that's very interesting in, in, in football and in the stories that you cover. So what well, I've what I've gotten out of this so far is that it might just be a distraction act to cover up something bigger that is happening behind the scenes, and uh, the, the 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 very um, interested reader of Baba Go will find out more in in, in, in future weeks times and <laughs> in the weeks to come. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it does sound incredibly to, interesting. Cause, I, cause, I don't want to publish a, a half-ass piece. I want the whole picture. You know? No, of yeah. course, of course. Because, I mean, also, I read some of the, the German news coverage about this and then a piece we read in, in the New York Times. And there it was portrayed as, of course, a great opportunity to um, rewrite history a bit for the club and to, to, see, to see that there's actually more harmonization hmm. um, going on there. And so, of course, having seen the documentary first, you, you could think that, okay, maybe now it is moving in the right direction. Maybe some, some progressive and, and, and positive energy is going on there. 
But of course, what you are saying now um, makes it all the more interesting and you start to question this and see what the actual motivations are behind of all of this. Yeah, I think, you know, my the biggest lesson for me, and, and I think it's a very important lesson for any aspiring journalist, um, things are never black and white. And especially when you are dealing with such extreme elements in in societies and history, things will never be perfect. Yeah. It can still be a barrier-breaking incident that will change the history of this club, but on the same time, a mega-fraud involving Bitcoin, politics, and crimes from all over the world. It can be. Yeah. So, and, and for me, you know, it's a, it's a story that, I, I, first of all, I'm, I'm privileged to cover, uh, but it's also a, a story that the, I had few times that I, I, you know, I discussed with myself, do I have the tools to cover it properly? You know, you need, you need, yeah, <laughs> you need yeah. an intelligence agent. Yeah. Basically. <laughs> so so uh, um, you are right. You said something nice, you know. It really is what we, where we started the conversation that the football is, and, and Babagol is in the intersection of football and, and wider topics. But this monster has eight heads. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's so one of the heads is basically the impact on, on the crowd, really, and, and the shifts and the changes that the crowd is, is going through in this deal. And there, there are risks because right now, basically, I will tell you where we are standing. We are waiting for the decision of uh, the committee for approval of uh, commercial rights. Okay, yeah. it's a it's a body within the Israeli Football Association that that needs basically to approve the new owner of fifty percent of Beitar Jerusalem. Again, if it wasn't clear by now, one of the biggest institution of Israeli sport, maybe the biggest symbol for Zionism and right-wing in Israel. Yeah. And so it's, it's, you know, you have all the focus and all the media uh, on this on this committee, uh, and they invited the uh, investigation from a private business, uh, uh, business intelligence uh, company, and their, their report was very bad. And on the tip of the iceberg, I will tell you, the sheikh wasn't called Sheikh Ahmed Ben Khalifa until not so long ago. And basically, this thing I already discovered in Dubai, but they discovered like it's a rabbit hole, basically, of small crimes and crypto. And Alice in the Wonderland is, 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 is it's a kid's story. There's nothing. Uh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, this, yeah. this is a cliffhanger. So we are waiting to see to see the decision, basically, yeah. and we will know where it goes because there might be a chance, a slight chance, that they won't approve it, and there there will be no deal, and it will be it be more interesting if we th- we try to think on the impact on the crowd. Yeah. If the deals fall through, La Familia will say, "You see, we told you, mm-hmm. Beitar shouldn't have an Arab owner," and then. All this positive momentum we we witnessed will changed. Otherwise, maybe people will say, "No, we already made a step forward. We're going to fight La Familia." But if we, if we want to fight La Familia for real and to beat them once and for all and clean Beitar Jerusalem, you need a lot more than one hundred million dollars. 
Yeah. You need like a billion dollars at least. Yeah, and, and that, that's what I was wondering about in general because it was portrayed as this huge chance, as I said earlier. But also, um, how effective are these kind of top-down decision-making processes, right? So you suddenly have someone with enormous finances buying half of the shares of the club and then that's portrayed as this move in the right direction. But it, doesn't it need to be built from the bottom up? Isn't it also with the fans, with the culture, with the acceptance towards people from other countries? These things are not changed by one transfer or by the, the, the change of one chairperson or the, uh, one owner of the club, right? This is something bigger and broader that has, needs probably community work and a bigger, bigger movement. And so with all of these stories, I, what, what I was missing a bit was how did the fans react to this? What does this mean in general in the social change of the fan culture in, for Baitar Jerusalem and maybe also within the bigger picture of, of Israel in general? Um, because I think that's, that's at the end the, the important thing uh, that needs to, to change or to evolve. Um, and I think, yeah, what, what this should be all about. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with you, you know, um, as someone who, was, who sees the, exactly like you, the community of the, of the game is, is very important. So I'm saying it's, it's complex because it's still, the change is still going on. Yeah. The fight is live and kicking right now while we speak and we, we still don't have the full picture. We still don't know the end of the story for sure and count on me. If Beta, it's Beta Jerusalem, it will be, it's a jungle. It's a circus without a roof. It will get even madder next week when they want a program, for example, okay? And then the owner, Moshe Chogel, will say, okay, so we'll do, we'll go from behind. He will be a sponsor and I will be the full owner, but he will have the face and we will decide this. It will be crazy. And if they will approve him, Man, the the reaction of La Familia it 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 haven't started yet. Wait, wait if 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 it will be approved, okay, and our players will start to come, then the real deal will start. So, then sounds... we will see if they are they are up for the real fight because there it will be blood and it will be bad. Yeah. Sounds like a job guarantee. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> what, what? Sounds like a job guarantee. <laughs> For you. <laughs> <laughs> Much more things yeah. to uncover. I'm conscious of, of the time, so I just want to quickly touch on the second topic that I wanted to bring you on to discuss, was the because we're a year away from the World Cup in Qatar, the first World Cup in, in the region, and, you know, obviously we shouldn't ignore a lot of the issues that are sort of especially brought up whenever we discuss the World Cup in Western media around construction rights and the, the death toll um, of the construction workers who are, you know, dying building these stadiums. But I was curious about what you foresee as sort of being the impact of the World Cup being hosted in this region. Do you see it sort of fitting in into this trying mood of sort of peace and normalization among relations? Or do you see it sort of not really having much of a... Or what about what's impact on football, even on, in the region? 
Yeah, I, I, I was I was glad to see this question in uh, in the lineup you sent me, Alex, and because I think that um, the World Cup in Qatar, in a way, became a taboo that you cannot uh, express a complicated thought about it. And when I mean a complicated thought, I, I mean exactly like what we did now. We spoke about Betar Jerusalem, racism, football, Arab ownership on the club. And, and we said it might be good, but it also might be bad in the same time. And this is a complicated thought. And I think that the, the story about Qatar World Cup, which has many, many dark sides, of course, and... It's a very complicated thought and it needs to be discussed uh, in a more gentle way and, and more eye-opening way to understand what we are talking about. Uh, we are talking about maybe um, uh, the only chance of the Middle East in the past 100 years or more to show to the world that this region is a fantastic place to play football, to meet people, to enjoy good food, to get a, a, a personal introduction to amazing cultures with superb uh, hospitality capabilities, everything, really. It's a unique chance for a whole region, but because it's Qatar and because it's the Middle East, and because many bad things took place in the preparation, okay, and the, we are talking about a country and a society and a region that has been transformed and changed so much from the moment that Qatar got the won the bid to host until now. Talking about uh, uh, 12, uh, 13 years, 12 years by now. Uh, that to only focus on the, on the on the the death of workers which is horrific and shocking and an unjustified situation there is no argument about it and on the same time we are not seeing the wider topic the wider the wider picture and when i'm saying the wider picture is basically the world cup change places. I've been to the World Cup in Russia to cover. It was a World Cup with a record number of five Middle Eastern national teams. I was there. I had plenty of work in the group stage. After the group stage, <laughs> I lost all my work. <laughs> but uh, a few editors like my point of view. So, you know, they told me, write about Russia, write about Croatia, go enjoy yourself and give us your, your thoughts. But I saw how the World Cup is changing Russia. And for me, as the first World Cup I'm, I'm, I'm attending, it was very important to be there ahead, many times ahead. I came two weeks, almost three weeks before the tournament. I want to see Moscow and Russia changing. I wanted to see the first moment of change because this place, for the first time, opened its gates to 4.5 million people to come and visit in one month. 
the, Russia never had this amount of people coming to, to visit as tourists. And I think the Middle East is in the same situation. We are suffering from stereotypes. Israel is suffering from, from stereotypes. Qataris, Saudis, Arab and Muslims as a whole, Arab Christians, Lebanese people, Egyptians, North Africans, Berber, everyone. We, you know, we are the others. We are the, the pineapple that, yeah, once in a few seasons, we have a very good player that shine in the Premier League or in the Bundesliga. And then you hear about us, the places that these players are coming from. And I think the World Cup in Qatar, first of all, without taking any, any again, any importance, without taking down and, and downgrade any importance of the horrific situation that took place in the construction sites there. Qatar never hosted the World Cup. It's a world that lives in a different way than the rest of the world, than the U Western Europe, than the US, okay? They, they, they worked in this way for hundreds of years. The World Cup put a situation, a fact on surface and basically made this place to change, to change their construction, law right now they, they are working by the eu construction law because of the world cup because of everything so i'm saying it's bad but on the same time maybe this was this was the price this was the horrific price that we need to 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 charge in order to change something in order to create a new reality and about the bribery allegations, for example, yeah, it's okay. It's easy to focus about Qatar and the World Cup, but also Russia was uh, there was bribery involved, and we also know that in Germany, two thousand and six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, uh, the bribery thing is is, I think is, is very much um, on my list of sort of maybe uh, apprehensions about the Qatar World Cup. It's quite low because we know. I mean, what we know now is that you know all the countries were doing it. It's just. England were worse at it than other places, and you know they exactly. they, they weren't escaped. So we discovered we discovered very interesting thing. Okay, also in Brazil, they moved thousands of people out of their homes to build fan zones. In South Africa, you you will never know how many workers died building the soccer city. What we now know, and very good, we know it that. Um, you know, having mega international events on countries that has not that doesn't have the infrastructure to host it, you need to build it. And if you build it, and you build it by the the laws and measurement of these countries before any reform, you're gonna see something you don't like, something that wouldn't take place in Germany or or France, maybe. All right. But this country needs to have its chance to change. You know, don't judge it like this. They're trying very hard. And I'm saying again, the, the World Cup in Qatar is a huge chance for the whole region to show a different face, not only to Qatar. It's a, it's a unique chance for us Middle Easterners to show our touch for football the way we see it. And, and I believe it will be a great World Cup it will, if, if there will be fans, of course, you know. Um, and for me, I think it's a, a huge possibility and a huge chance for, for the whole world. Because in this, in this manner, you know, which 
Qatar was involved in the blockade with Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia also pushed for the for the media about Qatar, and they, they, they really tried to grab this World Cup and move it, make it an all Middle Eastern tournament, or even take it and host it themselves. It was like a small a small venture they tried to do a couple of years ago. It it became very political, of course, within yeah. the Middle East also. I'm saying, you know, if we take this view of judging Qatar now about these things, you know, we can judge. Why should Germany host uh, football sports events? In the Olympics of 1972, there was Jewish uh, athletes that were murdered. They shouldn't host. And let's talk, not talk about history and what took place in 1939 to 1944 in Germany. <laughs> Come on. These, play, these people need to host? No. So we are not talking about this because the time has passed and we are mature people and we know that places and people change or even if they are not changing their heart, they are doing an effort to change their habits, give them a chance. Maybe they will be better in a few years. Maybe this kind of event can change the whole region, have a tremendous impact on peace. And real peace, not the Abraham Accords out of the blue, yalla, Israel and the UAE. Talking about people, man. You know, to hug, to eat hummus together. This is what I'm talking about. And I really hope uh, this, this will be the impact of the World Cup 22 in Qatar. Yeah, thank thank you so so much for this, um, because yeah, I, I do th- I do think that there's definitely this bigger story to be told, and um, I felt like this was this was very much it. So so thank yeah. you. So I feel like we've um, thank you so much for your time uh, this afternoon. For sure, it's been an absolute pleasure. Before we finish up, is there anything you'd like to plug, or what's the what's going on in 2021 for Babagol? You sort of hinted at with, yeah. this, with, with this story, but uh, expanding on that, what else is going on? Yeah, so um, it's a good chance to say that we 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 made some few, you know, uh, tweaks and uh, we fixed few bugs we had in the website not too long ago, and we are really building on uh, 2021 and 2022 to be significant years for this project. First for Middle Eastern football, but many more cool stories from all over, you know, Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Uh, a new podcast is coming out soon, I believe February or March. And we will do it, of course, in the Baba Gold style. Uh, so don't expect anything uh, normal. Uh, it's going to be funny. Um, of course, the Beitar story that we will keep uh, following again, you know, Israeli football, Palestinian football, Arab football and uh, North African football as a whole, our scouting edition. And we are about to put an effort about more long form uh, pieces, more, ju- you know, proper journalism. Um, we we'll try to do it once a week. We'll see what our capacity, maybe once a month. But I want to give the reader something that they won't read anywhere else not only by the story, but also by the quality. So it will require more for the team, but uh, I think we can do it. Uh, for sure, we will try. You know. mm, it sounds great. It sounds great. And I, I encourage all our listeners to check out Babagol online and follow you on social media. You're on Twitter. I think it's... Liv, sure. Liv, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Twitter is, uh, is Babagol and uh, like, I don't know how you say, like this... Uh, Capital letters? Uh, oh, like the, uh, oh, the underline thing. Ah. The underline. Babagol underline on Twitter, on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, 
soon i hope spotify and, and the rest of the places you can listen to listen to podcasts to yeah. and babagold.net or babagold.com actually it's a fun thing you know uh, we put babagold.com uh, uh, url it was domain basically it was a deal that i worked on seven years <laughs> i tried to buy babagold.com wow. from 2014 and every year we were negotiating they wanted $21,000 for this But thanks, thanks to the coronavirus, I managed to get a better deal. So yeah, also Babagold.com, you can click and, and you find everything you need in the website. All right, that sounds fantastic. Um, thank you so much for your time, Yuri. I feel like we could have talked about these topics for hours. For sure, always, always. It was a huge pleasure, guys. Thank you so yeah. much and thank you for having me. Thank you so much for the insights. That was, that was really, really interesting. Wow. Network.